Welcome to DBPA, the Drunk Bitches Podcast. I'm Jamie. And I'm Sarah. Each episode, we pair a wine with a topic where you get more lip with each sip. So let's get started. But first, pass the wine, bitch. Hello, DBP. Welcome to our episode today called The Hunter and the Stag. Today, we're going to be popping open a bottle of the Stag Cabernet from the north coast of California. And we're going to be discussing um, a topic that is... Uh, it works with the time of year that we're in. So October <laughs> and November, yeah, is hunting season. So I know there's a lot of you hunters out there, and there's a lot of hunters' widows like myself that are out there. So <laughs> wait, whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> You're not a widow. No, but a hunter's widow, I am. I don't even know what that means. Yep, I will. We'll get into it. Okay, okay. So it is a special episode because we do have a guest. Uh, my husband, Adam, who is an avid hunter, and uh, he will help describe what a hunter's widow is. But more importantly, we're going to kind of get into uh, why he hunts, why people are involved in hunting, what what is it exactly? We all know what it is, but what is really behind it and why is it so important? Yeah, and, I think there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah, and how is it important to um, the environment and the circle of life? So, so welcome, welcome Adam. Adam. Thank you. <laughs> nice to be here with you guys. Uh, I know you know the DBP girls quite well, I do. but uh, <laughs> I do. quite well. Quite well. <laughs> One on a more intimate yeah. basis. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get to know each other. You're gonna get to know the DBP population. So um, why don't you pop open this bottle that we've got here? We learned a lot about the label and the background behind this bottle. Uh, I know a lot of you might be familiar with Stag's Leap. Uh, this is not Stag's Leap. This, this is, is not. This is the Stag. So it's a little bit different. Please check out our Instagram page and our website for a picture of the bottle because it is it is quite the Stag on the label, I will say. It, it is a beautiful label, but... There has been some uh, very interesting articles that we found about this wine, and we're going to get into some nitty-gritty. Oh, wow. That was, that a, was a silent pop. pop. Got to be quiet. Never been done before. Jeez Louise. Who got the stags? Well, there you go. We're already learning things. Thank we're already you. learning things about hunting. That's it. Um, so this is made, from Saint, made by St. Hubert's. And Jamie, why don't you tell us what does that actually mean? Well, we gotta cheers first. All right, cheers. All right, cheers, bitches. Cheers, cheers. bitches. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, it's got some good tannin. Yeah. Yeah. So we know we've done cab before, but we this is a little bit of a different spin here. Yeah. Uh, so so yes, yeah, Saint Saint Hubert's. Yeah, because we're not gonna really gonna talk about cab because that's like. Uh, what is it? Beating a dead horse at this point because we've had or a dead deer or a dead deer. Uh, so we oh, we're so nerdy. <laughs> um, yeah. So Saint Hubert's is actually surprisingly enough from Australia, which is kind of weird because we're drinking a California Cabernet. Saint Hubert's is uh, was established in 1862 by Hubert de Castella. That sounds very fancy. It actually sounds really fancy, and now I'm curious where he originated from. Regardless, uh, St. Hubert's was named after the patron saint of the hunt. Hubert was a 7th century nobleman uh, who turned life around after an encounter with a magnificent stag carrying a shining cross between his antlers. 
this is one of the first wineries established in the Yarra Valley, uh, which is just outside of Melbourne, Australia. I know we've talked a little bit about those regions, that southern, southeastern uh, side. Just out of curiosity, do you know where you guys can see that symbol of the stag with the cross between its arrows? No, where? I mean, besides the label. On the label of Jägermeister. Oh, Oh, that's right. Wait, is that for real? Yeah. I mean... And the story. I mean, how much... True or not is that that Jäger, right? Jäger is German for hunter. Jägermeister is the master of the hunt. Mine is blown. I know that. I believe, I believe, and this is total speculation, but I believe that the original recipe of the liquor called for deer's blood in the liquor. I shut could up. be wrong, but that... I mean, don't really shut up. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like that's the story that I've heard. But yeah, that's the symbol. That's that's where that symbol comes from on the bottle of the Jägermeister. Okay, I apparently need to drink more hard liquor. No, uh, uh, not Jäger. That's that shit's ooh. nasty. That's rough. Too much college. That's nope. R- I did not do that. I missed out on the experience, but you know, whatever. I I I feel okay with my life choices. It was like that two a one forty nine a.m. shot that like <laughs> sounded maybe good. <laughs> that sends you over the edge. And yeah. Like, no. Night is done. Yeah. Now this leads me to even more questions about some of those articles that we saw. So. And interestingly, the stag on the label. Yeah is not a North American deer. I would have to think that it's somewhat intentional because this company is originated in Australia, but they've apparently, unbeknownst to us until we read these articles, mm-hmm. is actually associated with the Stags apostrophe at the after the S. Mm-hmm. Stags Leap Winery, mm-hmm. which is not Stags Leap Cellars. Which is not Stags Leap Cellars, which we just talked a little bit about in our Bottle Shock episode. Yeah, but we're going to explain that because it, it's confusing as hell. <laughs> it's wildly confusing. So, yeah. So, anyways, going back to St. Hubert's, you were saying they're from the Yarra Valley. Yep. Um, they do have quite a rich history. Uh, it's outlined on their website. Um, it really goes into the details of how they, they came about, and I encourage you to go on their website and read about them. Um, and I think that would be a whole podcast in itself. But, uh, you know, they say that just like the noble creature, their stag tier of wines represents elegance, grace, and esteem. So they do have other the stag wines, um, like Pinot Noirs and different, Inish, yeah, yeah, different other varietals that are initially from Australia. Mm-hmm. This is the only one they have that is from California or the United States, the Cabernet. Um, and they source it from the North Coast. So it's interesting, AVA, the North Coast, as we kind of get into that. Um, it does include Napa and Sonoma, but includes other counties. Yeah, but still. <clears throat> okay. So this is weird. This is weird. And we're going to get your take on this, too. Okay. So, essentially, this, the Stag, which is also Treasury Wine Estates, that's Mm -hmm. like the parent company, if you will, in Australia, they released this originally in Australia and then released it here in, like, 2016, and essentially they've been, a a lawsuit has been filed against them. By Stag in, in twenty Wine in twenty sixteen, yes, yeah. there was a lawsuit fi- filed by Stag's Leap Wine Cellars to Treasury Wine Estates mm-hmm. for the Stag label because they felt that they were infringing on basically their notoriety for this this label and their name. Um, 
a lot of it had to do with where it was sourced from. Um, but so one of the things, one of the things that they just, um, that they put in the lawsuit is that Stag's Leap Sellers alleges the Stag is responsible for a number of violations, including false designation of origin, unfair competition, and false advertising. I mean, it's sourced from California grapes. It indicates it's Californian, sort of, on the label. It's a cab. It has a big stag. It looks nothing like the Stag's Leap. It really doesn't look a lot yeah, like... Yeah, but you guys are coming at this from the position of, of some of people who understand wine and who know the nuances of the industry. So you have to appreciate this from like the... the what, I, what I imagine their argument is, is from the point of view of perhaps the less informed consumer. They know that there is a California wine out there that has the name Stag in it somewhere. True. Whether or not they know it's called Stag's Leap or The Stag, probably not. They know it's from California. So you have something called the Stag something from California. So there's, if you come at it from the point of view of, of Stag's Leap saying the average consumer may not be aware of the nuances of it, then you could have an argument that they're making a play on the notoriety of Stag's Leap. That is, I agree with you to some extent. I I agree that there are people, so for those who are like not knowledgeable of it, if you were to look at this bottle, you'd be, there's no way that you would really make that correlation that you think that this was from Stag's Leap wine cellars. Absolutely not. Different fonts, different way that the labels are designed, all of that stuff. Yeah, but you but, know that. Right. That's what I, yeah, that's what I said. Like, if you are into wine, you would know that. For and sure. You would not be yes. um, confused. However, I think that it's interesting because I think that the newbies, the noobs to the wine uh, industry could be confused by it. But here is, this is like the kicker in my mind because... At first, I'm reading these articles. I'm like, damn, I'm like, they are so onto it. And then I read that this Treasury Wine Estates actually owns and started Stag's Leap Winery. Which is not Stag's Leap Which Sellers. is not Stag's Leap Wine Cellars. But they started at the same time. There was also a bit of a lawsuit. <laughs> but it was decided that because they started at the same time that there would be no repercussions. And so technically, there are two. And it depends where that apostrophe lives. And one is Stag's Leap Wine Cellars and one is Stag's Leap Winery. Most people who are not intimately familiar with the topic to be able to discern something so nuanced. It's, it's, they, they're, they're absolutely legitimate to, to and, and, and well within their right, I think, to protect their claims and they should. But I think that you, you, you're, crossing into some murky areas where it should be expected that perhaps confusion would occur. Oh, I yeah. agree. We were confused. We were confused. But yeah. also the other the other side, the other side of the coin, the argument, I mean, if Which by the way, this is very drinkable wine. It is it is very <laughs> drinkable. Uh, well, we can do our tasting notes. Well, I I think I want to talk a little bit for a minute. Okay here on what North, North Coast actually is, because I said it involved Napa, Sonoma, Sonoma and Napa, but it's more than that, as I, as I mentioned before, and 
How far reaching is it? Yeah. So it's kind of important because they talk about how they they um, source their grapes from select lots in the North Coast. Okay. So you're like, all right, well, what does that actually mean? Oh, it could mean a lot. Right? <laughs> so like, it's like six counties located north of San Francisco. So there's Lake County, Marin County, Mendocino, Napa, Sonoma, and Solano. And this covers over 3 million acres. So you're talking like, I it's mean, who so knows? vague. And then a num, a num, then there's it's more so sub-appellations that all kind of share the same weather. However, they're influenced by, you know, the, the Pacific Ocean and the fog. Right. However, I mean, you have no idea. Small, like select lots from the North Coast could mean a lot. So it, it is interesting that we don't know exactly where they came from because yeah. you know that if it's a Napa wine or a Sonoma wine, they're not saying, oh, it's a North Coast wine. They'll tell you it's from Napa or Sonoma. Also, because it's from like North Coast in general, it is that vagueness. It doesn't imply that there's like a, you know, a lot of people pay a lot of big money for Napa Cab. Like Napa right. Cab, like generally costs like upwards of, I'd say probably $50 if you're going to get like a really... High quality, paying for the name too, but I, I feel like because we're North Coast and we get, we're not going to get like a, a unique characteristic, like a unique flavor profile from say Mendocino County, which I know I've seen on labels. Like that's a very also common AVA, right? Yeah, yeah. Or like we talked about, you know, the Sierra, like the Sierra foothills. Sierra foothills, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so the other interesting thing is on the website, they talk about how the North Coast is the home of the Rocky Mountain mule deer and that it uh, has higher altitudes and cool air. But yeah, home, so home of the Rocky Mountain mule deer, they say that on the website. And I did look into this and it is true that there is Rocky Mountain mule deer, deer in the north of, Northern California, which I don't know if that's very common. I don't know. Um, so it says it's the home of the so oh, just like by the home the, of the brave. Well, yeah, home but like by, the by the, but just by the name, right? So you know, Rocky Mountain Mule Deer, right? Kind of implies yeah, that it's in the Rocky Mountains. Exactly, which is not that's California. So it may be that they have mule deer there. I, and again, I'm, I have zero. Would they migrate up there? They, I mean, so so in North America, you have different species of deer. You have other species on the continental United States in what would be considered like big game farms or high fence hunting areas, okay. um, which is another topic entirely, which we can or yeah. not have to get into. Um, we've, got, we've got some other questions for I you, so you I'm might. sure that's another... Uh... So, but I don't... So to say that it's the home of the Rocky Mountain mule deer, I don't know. And I've also never heard of mule deer being referred to in subspecies, which is to say like this oh. is the this mule deer versus that mule deer. Mm-hmm. I just simply know them as mule deer. Um, so I don't, I, I'm not familiar with that particular, um, term. Yeah, I found, I found a couple blogs on it, so it is interesting. You'll have to look into it. Um, but, uh, yeah, so kind of getting into the wine a little bit before we get into the tasting too, I do, I do want to talk about a little bit of the background behind this, how they, we, we just talked about St. Hubert's, but (laughs) Jamie is intensely smelling this from side to side. (laughs) Um, so they talk about their their uh, their story. So the stag is inspired by the tale of a hunt when a great stag valiantly jumped to escape its pursuers and mysteriously disappeared into the fog. 
Ooh. That's um, the worst story I've ever I'm not heard. done. Hold on. I'm not when done. When you valiantly jumped to ex- and disappeared in the fog. There better be more to the story. <laughs> there is. <laughs> okay. We're still on the hunt today to find the sturdiest vines and the best grapes throughout the North Coast to produce the most sophisticated wines. This Cabernet Sauvignon is a testament to the pursuit of those goals and the, to the fight shown by the resilient stag. Uh, they also celebrate the noble stag and all it represents. These wines are inspired by those who lead from the front, who stand out for the choices they make, but above all, self-belief and confidence allows them to make the most of life. The stag <laughs> represents the best wines from around the world, wines that are innately linked to their origin. In turn, their ruggedly elegant wines are a reward for those who let their instincts lead them there. Adam is unimpressed. (laughs) (laughs) Can I... I'm going to offer you something else. Please, after that, definitely. (laughs) And this just talks about... Which is disappointing because, you know what, to be honest, I'm really enjoying the wine. You're digging the wine. I'm digging the wine. Not so much the The elaborate description. Um, So... (laughs) Let me ask you this. So it just says here, this is very brief. It's the stag is a symbol of power and elegance. Mm-hmm. The stuff of myth and legend revered the world over. He personifies strength and grace. Mm-hmm. I feel like that might be a little bit more representative. No, that's, that's much and you better. might feel that and experience that while 100%, you're out. 100%. Hunting, 100%. Right? Especially if you, and also what I would say is if you, if you travel uh, through Europe, which I have, the stag features prolifically in, in art, mm-hmm. um, sculpture, painting. Song uh, throughout all European countries. Yeah. It's a you know, it's a it's a it's a hunting was in in medieval Europe. I mean, it it was sort of a litmus test, maybe of 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 a man's of a man, of your manhood. Mm-hmm. You know, did you have did you have what it took to and especially. I mean, I could tell you stories probably longer than your listeners would like to uh, to hear <laughs> as far as things that I've seen uh, or, or how hunting is sort of woven into the history of Europe. Yeah. And, and what I would say is the history of Europe and the way that hunting is uh, embodied there versus North America is, is much, much different. What we have here in North America is, um, is very unique and very, very special sort of in the context of the world as far as hunting goes. What we have here in North America is, is, is especially specifically America, right. is nowhere, you will find it nowhere else in the world. Our access and ability to hunt, um, our, our access to public lands, um, you know, this, the legend of Robin Hood is actually, you know, if, for people who actually know this, yes, he, he robbed from the rich and gave to the poor, but he was, he was an outlaw because he killed the king's deer. Like, Damn. That's the legend oh, of Robin that Hood. That sounds intense. And it was because any any deer are the property of the king, whereas in the United States, wildlife is the property of the American public. It is it is a collective ownership of all wildlife that we all as Americans have. And and in that it allows us access number one to enjoy that, but also it sort of conveys a sense of responsibility and ownership and stewardship mm-hmm. as far as, as the preservation and, and well-being of that going forward for future generations. Okay. I like that. I'm going to have some questions, some follow-up questions for you later. Okay. Jamie's taking notes, sir. Okay. So let's get into the wine before we get into some of those questions. Yes. Um, like this I said, this is a cab. Amazing. 
It does smell I wonderful. Mean, I, I actually need to pour myself a little bit more. Get it. It is a 14.4% ABV, so pretty high in alcohol here. Which you wouldn't um, pick up on the I, noise. No. Uh, you Not do pick it up on the taste for me, at least. For you. No, You're so sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> You're a snowflake. I'm, I'm kidding. Oh, watch yourself, girl. Watch yourself, girl. Girl, I heard that on the radio the other day. I was like, shit. <laughs> um, I can't. I can't. No, but you taught me something. Yeah, I, the snowflake. Yeah, the snowflake. Yeah, no, uh, different podcast, different time. Um, it's really good. Okay, I have to be honest. I feel like the mm-hmm. wine description uh, uh, from the St. Hubert's was a little indulgent, and <laughs> they said so many words. Like it was just like too many descriptors for one wine. So I, I'm gonna go ahead and start with. Um, oh shit! Let's not. We can't even recite that. That's not worth it. It's it's, it's totally much. not worth it. It's too much, and I didn't even repeat it all. Yes. As someone not nearly as wine enlightened as the both of you. <laughs> oh, I like that wine enlightened. That's beautiful. I'm enlightened. I'm enlightened by wine. So it seems like there's a lot of red fruits on it, Mm -hmm. um, like dark cherries. Um, There seems like there's some, you get like some red apple skin to it. Mm -hmm. There are some tannins to it. There's some wood. There's a lot of, um, one of the descriptors I like to use is if you were in the forest and you actually walked up to like a a log that had been rotting for a long time and you picked it up and it actually crumbles in your hands. Anybody who's a hunter or who's ever been out in the woods will know that, what I'm talking about. And you would smell that. It's a decayed wood smell. Like there's that here. Um, there's the smell of. There's a very subtle like minerality to it. Not not something like a hard slate or something like that, but almost like um, like river stone. If you were to walk by a river and you were to pick up a stone that was sitting by the riverside and you would you would smell that. It has that kind of. Doesn't say lick it. People lick stones. Whatever you're into. <laughs> I mean, I've never done it. I'm not here to judge you. I've never done it, Adam. Um, but you get, I would say that you get those kind of things, you know, and almost, there's almost like a little bit of a sweet rot smell to it. Almost like a, like a sweet mushroom smell to it. I don't know if I get the mushroom. I definitely get the fruits you were talking about. I get the fruits. And the tannin you were talking about for sure. There's a lot of tannin on here. I don't know if there's a lot. I do get a good amount. Um, they, a lot of the wine descriptions describe blackberry. Um, and hints of dark chocolate and spice. There is a little spice, but it's I don't think it's as much as they actually discuss in the wine description. Um, you see there are a lot of tannins? No, not a lot I, of I don't. I would say that it's uh, on the lower end. I think there's a good lower. amount. I, I would say it's on the lower end. See, I'm picking up middle. So yeah. I, I would say like middle to minimal. Like Swish it. It's still not. Really? Yeah. I get middle. I don't. It's It lingers. I'd Definitely say, less than like it, 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 less the middle of the road. I you, would say hmm. mild at best. You can tell there's oak on this. Oh, um, even that is even mm-hmm. that is subdued. It's subdued, but you can tell it's a it's supportive. supportive. Exactly, they're supportive tannins. I feel like yeah, it's no, that's fine, but it's it's not one of those things where you're like, whoa. No, no, no. We've had it's, some tannins yeah. where like, yeah, like, oh, oh your yeah. Face off. No, no, but no, like no, what, no. what I would say with this, and this is interesting because I actually used this to to describe another wine the other day, is that the the most compelling aspect of the wine is the fact that it is its balance. Not one thing of this stands out from another. There's not one thing that's all the way out in front. Everything kind of comes together on this and, and works in harmony. 
Now, I, I really, to be perfectly honest, I really, really like this. This is a, like digging I would, it. You're digging it. I would. It? I would definitely. This is something I will definitely buy so, again. Let's that description notwithstanding about the stag dancing off into the fog and somehow that being like <laughs> uh, so seriously who wrote that like the the winemaker uh, you know what sir or man or man or man so from uh, the DBP rating mm-hmm. which you know you know from one to five and what is your rating I, I'm, I'm not familiar if we give like Point whatever is it full corks? No, it's we're full, full corks. It's full only corks. integers. Full corks. I would give this a three. All right. I would give it a solid three. Leaning towards a four, but since we can't give full corks, it's not quite a four. But I would like were I to you know be sitting out, mm-hmm. or, and I would think that this would pair well with a lot of different kinds of foods. Um, definitely, um, I think that this is very easily drinkable on its own. Yeah, actually, I'm glad that you said that because mm-hmm. I think that sometimes cab. Cabernet Sauvignon can be a very, uh, the tannins can be more pronounced mm-hmm. and more really like very aggressive. And I think that those types of wines definitely tend to pair better with food. Whereas I think that this one, the tannins are there. I think that they will do their job. I mean, we're eating that delicious soft cheese and I was eating it in the midst of drinking this and it's, it's perfect, right? So tannins are meant to like cleanse your palate, if you will. And this mm-hmm. It doesn't have a ton, but it still, it still does its job. It's like yeah. well integrated, and, and I think that it is okay. it is one of those that you can, you aren't gonna feel like craving something else if you're drinking it just by itself. Absolutely, so and I think the whole great. spiciness, I, I don't know that I necessarily pick up on what they're saying with there because if you think about something like a Syrah, you know where you're like, whoa, there's definitely some pepperiness to this, there's some spice. I, I pick up on none of that with this. Like, this is a very, very drinkable wine. It's like, it's very easy on the yeah. palate. It's smooth throughout. There's a, no point, like, in the beginning or the end where you feel like it's, you know, <laughs> difficult. But I really like it. I, yeah, the, I like I, I agree. There's a lot of... Uh, um, I do dis- pick up some notes, some spice. You mentioned spice. There's a little bit of spice. There's some descriptions of black currant. I can kind of get a little bit of that as well. Um, for those of you who are not a clove. I don't know. familiar with our cork ratings, let me tell you what a three cork is. It's a part bitch. It's a part bitch. It's good, but not spectacular. So save on the nights on the couch where you're, wa- you're by yourself watching Friends or when you decide to open that last minute bottle. So, you know, it's a good wine, but we're not like... <laughs> Screaming the streets with it. I <laughs> it's a mood point. It's like a cow's opinion. It doesn't matter. She's so happy right now. It's Adam's uh, favorite friends quote. You only want to know. Adam's, Adam's not a huge friends fan, but he does love that line, right? But that I do is, love that line. Yeah, yeah the P.S. of Resistance. Uh, so, before, before we get... Just one more time, the food pairing options that oh, we talked yeah. about a little bit about how they uh, that we can drink this with easily food. with or without food, but surprisingly, so what would, what would you pair it with. So this is what I, is recommended. Whoa, whoa, before we get into that, all right, let's go around because I know what I would pair this with. All right. Oh, I certainly. I actually think that this cheese is perfect. Anything that's like mildly creamy, I. This is very soft, but I don't think it's like an over like. It's still is a pretty clean cheese. Does that make sense? Sure. It's like a yeah. clean cheese. So like it's not gonna like sit there and make me feel like I have like a film like over mm-hmm. the rest of my mouth. 
I think this pairs perfectly with that. I agree. I think the cheese works really well. That we're, It's like a very soft, almost like brie camembert, like camembert like cheese. I also think, though, that like a, a, like a really good salami or prosciutto would do well with this. But, so we're talking about charcuterie and cheese, but like, you know, as far as food pairings. Like, like, uh, I would do like a mushroom that. risotto. It's an interesting call. Okay. Mushroom gets earthier. Yeah, I think it would. I think it would do really well with this. Well, I don't think it's going to do bad with much. No, I would agree. I'll say that. But I do think that I'm. This is not to me like one of those that you need to have like a fatty steak to like pair with it, like a ribeye, right? Mm -hmm. So like ribeyes are going to be very fatty. You're going to want to have more tannins or acidity to like pair that, like peel that off with. This you could probably go with something leaner. Like if we're if we're talking like meats, like you could probably do like a duck or pork, um, some sort of or pork or like a filet mignon, like something that's a leaner cut of beef. Sure. But yeah, if you wanted to go towards the meat realm, one what are your things, thoughts, fine sir? Well, I was going to say that since we're on the topic of like you know the stagnant thing, like one of the things that's big this time this year, and I know especially in our house, is is wild game. You know, specifically, you know, in this particular instance, like venison. Like, so what, one of the things that I like to do is, um, I like to do, um, like stews, like a, like a, a wild oh, stew, so whether that be with, Are you like, reading my notes here? I'm not, actually. I can't see that side of the computer. <laughs> but, um, so a lot of people that are into hunting are, are also into just the outdoors in general. And when you aren't hunting, maybe you're doing something like picking mushrooms or something like that. And whether they mean morels or chicken in the woods or something yeah. like that. Um, and also a lot of people that are into hunting are also into gardening. So something like a, like a wild game stew with like venison and wild mushrooms, um, you know, like you can do, um, now I'm forgetting the name of them, but there's a wild onion and it starts with an R. I can't believe I can't remember. Either way, you're going right to blow now. my mind because I don't know how to cook very well. So, um, but that, this, I feel like would pair very well with that. I think that like a like a, a very sort of hearty wild game stew yeah. would be particularly appropriate for this. I mean that is some well, of the stuff. Interestingly that they enough, say. they yeah. say <laughs> yeah, uh, they say to pair it with beef, lamb, venison, stews. <laughs> Adam's like silently rejoicing right now. He's flexing. <laughs> you can't see it, but the flex is real. The flex is real. The flex is real. Um, real. Cheeses like camembert, which we're kind of eating something similar to that. It's similar, but... Yeah. yeah. Cheddar, blue cheese, parmesan. But yeah, Yeah. they they definitely mentioned the venison and the stews, and so you kind of got that down. Bravo. All right, so now that we've covered our wine, I think... Is it time? I think it's time. I think it's time to start the big Q&A session here with Mr. Adam, the hunter, with the stag wine. Cool? Cool. Cool, cool, cool. All right, sir. So, I mean, I've known you for a while, and since I've known you, you have been a hunter. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is getting intense. Right. Actually, oh my God. Okay, <laughs> sorry. I'm just going to say this. I'm going to repeat this for those who haven't listened to episode one, but remember we had a 2015 Phoenix Rising because that was the year that we met, and it was amazing, and this is a 2015 The Stag. Mm-hmm. This is the year that I met you, Adam. So, I would really appreciate it, and I think our listeners would appreciate learning a little bit more about how the hell did you get into hunting? You okay. didn't grow up with it. Because you did, right. I know we've talked a little bit about that, but I really, I want to get a sense of, like, what, what drew you to this 
And how did you even get started with it? I mean, it's a lot to chew. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so, no, I did not grow up hunting. My father is not a hunter, which is, uh, I guess people would say that's probably very atypical. It's very unusual for someone to get into hunting, although probably less these days. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, it was more something that would be passed down father to son, father to son. Um, but, no, I didn't grow up with it. My father is... Uh, is very much in the outdoors, but more as uh, an agrarian. He, mm -hmm. His big thing is gardening and farming. Um, you know, Got it. I wonder where you get that from. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, he, you know, we went fishing um, when I was a boy. Um, but even I would say that that was not necessarily his thing. He probably did that for me, um, but definitely never hunting. Um, I had, you know, like air rifles and things like that as a kid, and he taught me how to shoot. But hunting was just never a thing in our family. I don't even think I know anybody necessarily that was... Uh, definitely none of my uncles or any close family friends that did it. I think that there were acquaintances that we had that I probably, if I reflected, would say that were hunters, but it was definitely not okay. something inside my inner circle. Um, but I was always, always into the outdoors. I mean, as a little kid, summertime, sun was up, I was gone. I mean, um, <laughs> sort of interestingly for where we grew up, even though it was in the suburbs, there were miles of forest reserve behind my house. Oh, and yeah. I was, oh yeah. Yeah. And I was out there, I mean, all day, sun up to sun down. Um, and we had a tremendous amount of wildlife back there, which was very unique for where I grew up. I mean, everything from white-tailed deer to possums to raccoons to red fox to squirrels to, I mean, coyotes. I mean, just name it. We had, you know, garter snakes, pygmy rattlesnakes. I mean, all these different kinds of things. Half of those don't sound appealing to <laughs> me. And um, I, was, I was just fascinated by it as a, as a child and as, and as a, you know, as a teenager and as a young man. And then also, um, in my family, reading was a huge thing. And so, uh, just, I can remember with great, you know, vividness and fondness, reading stories from, you know, anyone from like Teddy Roosevelt to Ernest Hemingway to, you know, people like, uh, Peter Capstick or Robert Rourke and these stories of, of hunting just, uh, I mean, they just can completely captivate me. Yeah. And, um, and I knew that somewhere in the back of my mind that I, I wanted to do it. Um, and you know, with schooling and everything like that, I just, yeah, I didn't have the time or the money or anything, but always in the back of my mind, I decided that, you know, when the opportunity presented itself that I, w I wanted to, to do it. Um, and sort of through the years, um, ended up, you know, picking up shooting, mm -hmm. um, with, you know, uh, whether it be shotgun or rifle or something like that. And, you know, so became fairly, you know, proficient with that over the course of time through, um, you know. So that more so before you even got into the hunting. Oh, right? yeah. Because before oh, definitely. you do that, you got to make sure that you're well, I think that there, you know, so It was like an eventual, like... It, yeah, I mean, I think like all things, it's, it's a progression. Um, so I think that I had always been in the woods and had a sense of, of a woodsmanship, for lack of a better term, just through my whole life. And then sort of in my teenage years and college years, um, through various opportunities, uh, just... Um, develop my marksmanship mm -hmm. and then when the opportunity presented itself uh, and I had the time and the resources you know made good on my promise to myself and, and went hunting for the first time and so wait so when when exactly did you start like how recently um, so my first hunting trip was in 2013 yeah when I met him he had not 
hunted before. He'd and that surprises hunted. a lot of people because it yeah. is such a focal point in my life now, like the, yeah. the year round, like I'm either hunting or in preparation for hunting. So yeah, no, it, it's something that I imagine was probably always should have been there. And the first time that I went hunting, the, the first question that popped in my mind was how have I, two things occurred to me. One, how have I not been doing this my entire life? <laughs> and two, that it wasn't even a choice, like that I had to do it for the rest of my life. Like I had to, like it's, I think there's, and we might get a little bit into the weeds here, but, and I'm sure that most of your listeners are probably not hunters, but on the, <laughs> on the chance that some of them are, or maybe some of their significant others are. Oh, no people. Significant yeah. others, I'm right. sure. What I would say is there, there are hunters and there are people who go hunting and there, there are those of us. Who, and you're going to say hunties. No. Hunties. <laughs> And, uh, there's a, like, for those of us that are hunters, there's a very clear distinction between that. Like, it's something that, like, is, it's just in, in you. You have to do it. And it's, it's like woven into the fabric of who you are. So, feel free to ask questions, because I'm sure that you've asked him all the questions. I mean, I, I've asked several questions. I do think that, you know, from, uh significant other standpoint mm-hmm. you know you you see a lot of things that you weren't expecting to see for for me because when I met him he didn't hunt you know it, it was yeah. a lot of it was a lot of it was a learning process for both of us because when you meet someone and it wasn't just when I met him he didn't hunt it was a few years after that I met him that he started hunting or went on his first hunt and I was excited that he had found something he was so passionate about because mm-hmm. it's really nice to see the person that you love to be happy about something yeah. the way that he was. Yeah. Um, but I think that it, it does take um, understanding to really get it and to really be, um, I don't want to say tolerant because that's not the right word, um, but it is a lifestyle. And so you have to understand that lifestyle to be able to kind of sure to integrate that into your life, especially it is year round in the sense that you're preparing and things like that. But thinking about where you're thinking about it, you know, but you really like when we talk about Hunter's Widow, it's that time of year when the significant other, which is usually the woman, not all the time, but usually the woman who is without the husband or other significant other because that person is off hunting for such a significant amount of time. So they, they deem them the hunter's widow. Um, and that is true to an extent for sure. But I think that there's a lot of positive that comes out of it because when you have somebody that can actually be passionate about something and it is for the greater good and it's not, some sort of hobby that doesn't have any greater meaning. Yeah. You know, I think I know, yeah. it, it helps. It helps you understand that and um, support it for sure. So I think so. that's really interesting because, like you said, it's a cha- It's a lifestyle, right? It's, mm-hmm. like, it's a lifestyle. It's not just like you're going to go like, I don't know, go play well, piano. A, you can't just go hunting, right? right? Well, no, like you, you can. And I think that that's the, and like, it's interesting because, like, obviously I know both of you guys are in. Sarah being my wife and, you know, Jamie being one of my very good friends. But even even you guys, knowing me as well as you do, you only know it from, from a very sort of uh, uh, peripheral and cursory standpoint. And Sarah, 
more so with time, but even as my wife, I think, has a somewhat limited understanding of it. You know, there's you can you can go way down the rabbit hole on a lot of this kind of stuff, but I want to say is, you know, for the entirety of human existence, like this is how it happened. Mm-hmm. Like this is how it worked. And it's it is absolutely fundamental to the human experience. Now I'm not saying that everyone has to do it. Yeah. Right. And I and I would say that it's, it's I know plenty of people who are not into it and that's fine. But there are so many things that are to be gained from it. There is such a deeper appreciation from life in general. Like this, the richness that is added to your life by partaking in the experience in the proper way. And I, I need to stress that because there are definitely ways that are done that are, that are perversions and bastardizations of it. And I would say that those like myself and, and those that are my closest friends who, who I hunt with, I stand strongly opposed to that. This is something that we hold very, very dear. So can I can I can I give you a question for that? Sure. That some of our of listeners course. might be interested yeah, in. Of it's, course. There's a, there's kind of a stigma. Okay. Not a very good stigma sometimes associated with hunting. Like I think the general population who aren't don't know anyone who really is a hunter like you or mm-hmm. into hunting has kind of a bad stigma. Sure. With it. Um what is that, and and like, what does that involve, and why is that wrong? What so is like, the stigma? Yes. So, like, what what do you think that's about, and why do you so think that that's not? I would only what be speculating as to what that stigma is, but I can say that based on my experience, I think that um, the stigma is one of the people that go hunting are very lowbrow. Um, unintelligent, uneducated, uncaring. That there is nothing that you hunt for nothing but bloodlust. Um, trophy hunting is a big thing that's out there that's in, you know that that gets popularized a great yeah. deal, which is well, I'm going to hunt something for its head and the rest of the animal go to waste. And like any other misconception, they are rooted in some usually some fact. I mean, like there, sure. that's that is. There are examples of all of those things, and I think, unfortunately, those things get cast into the the spotlight, and then people focus on that to the detriment of of what it is truly about, and and those people that... I would say that there is no greater opponent of those things than a genuine hunter. Right. I think that that's probably... As strongly as someone who does not hunt may feel against those things exponentially more would a true hunter feel against those things. So, I am sitting there nodding my head. I'm shaking my head because I'm like, there are these things that exist, but that's definitely not what I get from you in Mm -hmm. terms of why you hunt. Mm -hmm. So, as a more against the stigma. Mm -hmm. So, like the the Cecil the Lion type of situation? Yeah. Like, against that. But what, what do you get out of hunting? I mean, I already know a few things, but... Wow. But so that's a very... Uh, you could you could speak to that... It's multifaceted. For, sure. for hours at, at a minimum. And I know we don't have that amount of time, so I'll try and encapsulate it. But in as much as that it's a lifestyle, it is life. I mean, it is life. So people like to imagine themselves as somehow removed from nature, but you're not. You are You are part of it. Yes, you drive a car, you live in a house, you wear clothes, but like you are part of nature. And for millennia, 
you were intimately part of nature. I mean, they'll talk about like, why are children afraid of things with big teeth? Why is a monster have big teeth? It's because for thousands of years, we were getting jacked by jaguars in the jungle. I mean, like you were, we are part of the food chain. We have, we have evolved and created uh, a world which puts a wall between humanity and nature, but that is to our detriment. You know, I could go off on the whole notion of the reason that, you know, psychiatric illness or anxiety or um, satisfaction of life is at an all-time low, despite the fact that convenience is at all-time high. It's because you are part of nature and you need to be connected to that. And I'm not saying that people... Do you mean among hunters? No, no, no. I'm talking about just the population in general, right? You need to get out in nature. You need to walk around. I'm not saying that you have to hunt, but you have to go out there and you have to feel it. Like you have to experience it. And it will, no one who's ever truly done that has come away from that experience and not felt themselves profoundly enriched in some way. Now, what do I get from hunting in particular? This is in no particular order. Okay. One, the adventure of it. There are so many, so I'll simply speak to men. Right, because I know almost you're, nothing you're about women. Man. <laughs> Guys today, the whole like video games thing or the living of life vicariously through some sort of other medium, no. There's nothing you've ever seen on TV, no game you've ever played, no anything you've there's nothing you it's have ever done. You are out there you're right. raw with nature in your face. And it depends on how extreme you want to get. Like Myself, personally, I like to get very, very extreme. I want to go as far as I can. Like, I, the harder, You're the better. You're an extreme person? Shocking, I know. Intense? But, like, <laughs> I, I the less noticed. chance I have for success, the better. The harder... Suffering makes you a better person. You're like a fucking Riesling. I don't know what that means, but okay. So, oh, I get it. It's I get so it. True. You are. You are the Everything in life relates to wine. But yes. No, yeah. you're the fact about suffering. Like, you need you to. You never like, appreciated how good situation. it feels to be warm until you've truly right. so cold that, like, you right. couldn't stop shaking. I get you it. You never appreciate how good your bed feels until you've slept on rocks mm-hmm. or how good it is to have food until you've truly been hungry. And being out there and putting yourself in these places where you have, where you are unavoidably uncomfortable but making the conscious choice to do that it makes you more compassionate kinder more patient wiser it makes you a better person all these different things when i kill an animal i am consumed with a phenomenal degree of solemnity but it also puts in stark clarity into my face, my own morality, excuse me, my own mortality, not mm-hmm. morality, but my own mortality, rather, which is to say that like my life is finite. So, you know, don't waste time. Yeah. You know, like make hay while the sun shines because eventually something is coming to get you. For this deer, it was an arrow. Yeah. You know, for me, it will be something else. But like, be the best person that you can be in every moment of your life because your life only goes so long. Right. And there's a beauty to that finiteness. There's, you know, there is, there is an unquantifiable, like, eloquence to that, which I think that people 
and again, my approach to hunting is only my own, and I would not deem to speak for others, sure. but this is what I get from it. No, I mean, I think that's really great, and I think I think it's it's insightful, right? It offers a glimpse into sort of what one might think when they, you know, participate in this activity. And I, I want to say it's an activity, but again, I know that we talked about it being a lifestyle. It is, there's something very true in, in nature that's it's like not, what it's, we it's, it's, It goes even beyond a lifestyle. It's not a lifestyle. For someone like myself, it is who we are. It, it's not your lifestyle. It's you. It, it, there's nothing more to say than that. It's you. You have to do it. Like, I have to go out and do this. If I don't, like, then, like, I would be in some sort Shit of, like... Shit hits the fan, guys. <laughs> Seriously. Like Sarah well, that's, a, that's like, an unbelievably, like, sort of base way of saying it. Yeah, no, But, it's like, true. your life would not be where it needed to be. So, one thing I know, I think Sarah mentioned it before, but it was, like, you know, actually, like, some people, like, hunt for, like, Trophy hunting. Trophy hunting. Trophy hunting. So I think that that is, I think that's a huge thing that like is a misconception, right? Of, um, of hunters in general and, you know, like what hunting's about. I think it's a misconception that it's about trophy hunting. And it's I the, think it's, no, that's, that's not a misconception. That, there that's, are people that's thing. legit. Like people, but it's are, a misconception that that's that's all that's that it is. Right. No, okay, so yes, that is a misconception, but that is a legitimate thing. And, and also, I would say, that, like it is, in my opinion, only in my opinion, it is necessary for the hunt. The, those of us that are are truly ethical hunters, there's a term called fair chase, which I'm not sure if you guys are familiar. I with. I think you should tell people what that means because I think that that is. I think that for a lot of people, they have issues with hunting because they think everybody is the trophy hunter or the person who's going after endangered species or like exactly yes. who's just doing it to oh yeah I hunted I killed you know well there's there's a lot of there not, is a lot of that there out is there. a lot of that but, but that's again that's people who go hunting not hunters and like I guess if I was going to drive one point home with your audience like there is a there is a radical difference between the two so I'm sorry you wanted me to clarify something what did you want what is fair chase yes fair chase so fair chase is is a set of ethics I would say fair chase means that so there are certain things which would be considered not fair chase which is to say like high fence high fence means that there is a fence around whatever area that you are hunting oh. which prohibits the animals from they can't escape correct okay Baiting is another thing. To hunt Got over it. a feeder, to put out bait. Got it. To do whatever. Things along those lines, which is somehow to manipulate the natural environment in such a way that, that the animal is at a disadvantage or the hunter is at an advantage in the hunt. Hunting, what sure. I tell people when I take them out for the first time is you can expect a 10% success rate at best, which means we're going to go out 10 times and nine times or we may not even see anything, and we're definitely not going to have an opportunity. Our job is to train and work and scout and research and dedicate ourselves for the 10th time when the opportunity does present itself. And if you look at any predator in nature, whether it be a bear or a mountain lion or anything like that, more times than not, they fail when they hunt, right? So fair chase hunting is the ethic that 
we will not alter the natural environment in any way to, to increase our chances of success. We will hunt in a natural environment. Mm-hmm. That's fair chase. Where we will chase fairly, I guess, is the most simplistic in, way to put it. open land. Correct. Right. Correct. It's like a chance. I don't want to say it's a chance thing, but like... I under, like it kind of is because you yes, don't no, it absolutely is. Which is not to say that there aren't fences. For example, if you go out west or if you hunt here in the Midwest, there are fences, there are farms, whatever, right? But the fences are there just as fences, not for the specific purpose of re- of re- restraining wildlife within a designated geographic yeah. area. Okay, that so there was something you said, and I have always wondered this, and I've always forgotten to ask you. Mm-hmm. You said that nine times out of ten, you're likely not going to get anything. Sure. Right? Yeah. So this is a very... You must be extremely attentive mm-hmm. in this practice. And I'm going to call it a practice because yes, I would how you described that. it... Uh-huh. It's a practice. Almost seems like... It's spiritual. It is. It's like somewhat meditative to it some is. extent. It is. 100%. you can't think about all this other shit going on in your life. When you're in the woods... Your senses are dialed up to 15 on a scale of 1 to 10. I've told people, you'll see things you've never seen. You'll smell things you've never smelled. You'll hear things you've never heard. Like, you'll actually taste things on the wind. You're you on will. high alert. Well, but you're, and this is what it comes down to. You are alive. It's your animalistic No, sensations. you are alive in those moments in a way that you are never alive, no matter what else you do. You're not thinking about your emails. You're not thinking about what's coming next week. You're not thinking about your relationships. None of that stuff. And this this is for both men and women. I know some women who are hardcore, and I have nothing but the absolute utmost respect for them because they're out there getting it done. And it is is absolutely all-consuming. But in that, you come and you come away from it all the rest of your noise, the noise in your life is calmed down. Like, if more people went and, and just forget even the pulling of the trigger or the loosing of the arrow, if you just, don't even take a gun, don't even take a bow, I defy you. If you're out there and you think this is easy, aside from like the suburbs where deer are used to you just being in the yards, you go out to the wild, you tell me if you can get within 100 yards of a white-tailed deer. Try it. Try it. And if you can, email the girls, okay, and you and I'll talk, <laughs> okay? But I'll tell you right now, you're not going to. So that's, I mean, again, I sit there, the way you describe it, it is very much like you, you have to be very in tune with what's happening. And because you're going to see something out of just a small shift, right? It's you're probably not gonna see something like sprinting across and just happens to fall in front of you and you're just like, oh look at that. Well there's a spectrum. I mean the, so you know the subtleties of nature are unbelievable. You just need to take the time to like appreciate that and immerse yourself in it. Who is there an actor Chris Pine, that's that's an actor, <laughs> right? Is yeah, it? he was just in bottle so, shock. So he was so he's 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 an act so he's a hunter. And he, he actually spoke in an interview, and he was quite eloquent in the way that he spoke about this. And he said that most people go for a walk through the woods, but very few people go for a walk in the woods. And his point was outstanding, and his point was this. He goes, you walk through the woods, and the woods hides from you. But if you go and you walk and you sit down in the woods, and you're quiet, 
the woods comes back to life and you will see things that most people never see. And he is absolutely right. And he speaks as someone who has done it personally. And he has. Yeah. And I'll tell you that right now. I mean, like, I liked him as an actor beforehand, but when he said that, I liked him much, much more. Because, like, you know what? Like, You guys have similar beards. Well, you know what? That's, <laughs> that's, a, that's some wisdom that he's got right there. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, I tell people that... You know, one of my one of my favorite things is like, well, what's it like to go hunting, or or what do you see when you're out there? And one of my favorites because there's no way to really actually just sort of, you know, you convey. can't point that it, it's very difficult to convey all the things that you want to say. But one one quick thing you can point to is humans can only see black and white in moonlight, and they can only see color in daylight or artificial light, right? So there's a moment. So if you, for example, like I'll be hunting next week, mm-hmm. right? And we'll go out in the dark. Yeah. But there's a moment when the moon sets and the sun's coming up that the world before your eyes changes from black and white to color. And it's like you're like the first time glass. you see that, you're not the same person afterwards. You're just, you're not. People that don't think that magic is a real thing have never seen that. So, I know that you, we, you know, again, it's that sentiment of walking into the woods versus just, like, through the woods. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not Little Red Riding Hood, just, like, making our way to, like, we don't have an agenda. Grandma's house? Grandma's house, right. We don't have an agenda. It's one of those things that just, I want to experience what's around me. So as you walk into the woods, and I, I really liked that you went, you said, you, Chris Pine, I'm going to use you guys synonymously right now because you are definitely sporting a beard I just saw him with in another movie. Chris, if you're listening, that interview was outstanding. <laughs> Seriously, respect, man. You Chris, did, if you you're did, listening, please You did yourself us. proud of that moment. If you're listening, dude, that's awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just say that. Great. But, uh, but it's one of those things where, like, as you go into the woods... We talked a little bit earlier before we started recording about sort of like that quietness, that stillness, that there is a, there is a, a skill, if you will. And I, I'm going to pull this back a little bit to sort of, I'm going to try to tie it into all the things that you talked about. But when you describe that we are being who we are meant to be, like when you hunt, like that is, I think, a skill that has sort of, we have lost the need for it. Well, we've lost, we've lost the need for it because everything is everything available. is available and not just available. It's available in like lickety split. So like, right. There's more convenience. Uh, Burger King, McDonald's. Now it's like, oh, if you are traveling from uh, Michigan to Florida and you want to order your McDonald's on the way, go mm-hmm. ahead because it is. It is available. Because you right. can't. I mean, that's a thing. But you're right. We've you know? lost. We've lost. What we've the lost need to is do it. we've lost our connection. Yes. Yes. To exactly. Our, to, to our food. To our food. And so, like, so there's a couple names that your your listeners, if they are in any way interested in the topic of hunting, need to know. And those names would be Stephen Ranella, Remy Warren, Cameron Haynes. So Stephen Ranella, I, I think, is probably the most important name to know. And your listeners should look him up. He has a podcast of his own called The Meat Eater. Uh, he has a TV show oh, yeah. on Netflix called The Meat Eater. This is not a paid-for advertisement. No, it's not. Right? You know, it's, so he, he's an <laughs> author. Well, no, I mean, because 
he is he is the voice of hunting and conservation in this country right now, and he has done more good for the cause than, than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Lan Tawney is uh, another name. He's the president of an organization called Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Yeah. Uh, another another organization that your listeners should know about the Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Program. Another organization your listeners should know about. So. I'm going to get on a small soapbox here, if I may, just for a second. So It's a podcast. There here's, the difference between, here's, here's the difference between America and Europe. Americans have access to millions and millions and millions of acres of public land. Public. Owned by the public of the United States of America. All of us. Which means that everyone, no matter who you are, has the right to go on and enjoy it. And in this particular instance, to hunt on it. Now, while the majority of this land is out west, there is a significant amount of it also here in, you know, the east of the Mississippi as well. Midwest. And so what I would say is, like, for people who think that, like, this is something that they're interested in or whatever, like, there are definitely avenues for you to get out there and experience this. In fact, I was just watching a video today, um, and they were talking about, they, they did this video of this guy who hunts in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., completely suburban area, like right outside of Metro Metropolitan area, but he's out there doing it, you know, and sort of getting back to what I was talking about originally, Steve Ranella talks about like the importance of the connection between where our food comes from. People are callous and thoughtless and, and harmful to the environment because they have no connection with it. You go out in the woods, just garbage laying around, no one cares, people waste food, this and that. No hunter ever, 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 a true hunter, never. Hunter, not hunting. Hunter, hunter. not hunting, wastes a single bit of Mm -hmm. the animal they kill. I eat everything. I eat the heart, I eat the liver, my brother cooks up the kidneys, we eat all the meat, we use the we use the hide, we make stock out of the bones, nose to tail, that animal gets used, as it should be. Because yes. to not do that is not only shameful, but like disrespectful on a way of the that animal. It, of a hundred percent. Yeah, so that, that goes into the opposition of what trophy hunting is. Uh, absolutely. And so I think that that is absolutely. a great point because you're saying but, but, that you use up. the whole meat. But let's back that up a second. If you look in our basement, there are heads on the wall. That's true. And people need to understand that, like, keeping a trophy. Provided that the animal was dealt with humanely and we train year round to make sure that our skills are such that the animal never suffers, Mm -hmm. right? People are like, oh, you're killing something. If you go to a slaughterhouse and see the way that those animals are handled. Let's not talk about it. But okay, no, but let's talk about it because that plays very, very importantly into this. The animals that I kill live wild and free, not in cages, in a natural environment, not injected with hormones, not fed on natural food, not caged, not treated inhumanely, not for one instance of their life. You know that cage-free shit? There you go. go, But like until in a flash, something, and they don't even know something happened, like an arrow goes through them and in less, in in, in seconds, they're dead. So... And people who don't eat, like who are not about this, what I would ask them is like, you're sitting on leather seats, like your shoes, what like they didn't come from a shoe right, right, right. Okay. So your like, purse? and people who are even like vegans, I would back it up and I would say like, if you're a vegan, like the grain that you're eating, the combines that go through that field kill untold numbers of like rodents, small deer and birds and insects, like life eats life. We live some sort of 
like fantasy life now where people are able to remove themselves from the notion that there is a cycle of life. Like you're going to die one day. I'm going to die one day. And my body's going to turn into dust, right? Like there's some great poem I read one time that said that we have stars within us, right? Mm-hmm. Matter and energy, not created, not destroyed. It all just gets recycled. Yeah. So like you're, what you need to do is you need to assume responsibility and ownership for your part in the greater play. I think what you describe, and again, and I really, I'm very glad you didn't go like down the road of like describing all of the things that are entailed in like the way people process food nowadays. So I'm really glad we didn't get there because mm-hmm. I don't think I could stomach it. But sure. your description of what is part of the process for making food for larger consumption versus hunting. We take ourselves back to that sort of notion of hunters and gatherers, right? Back in the day, before we had all this processed, all this readily available food that you go to like any store, you go to Target, you go to fuck Walgreens, you could go, you go to any of these places and you can get like something that has meat, cheese, bread, all of the above, whatever you want. But what we're talking about, this is like how more naturally sourced, like from the source could you get, but also there's more meaning behind it because, and I don't hunt, I'm going to put it out there. I don't know that I could, I'm not sure that I could do it, to be honest. However, I don't. Which I think is okay. It's okay. It is okay. It's 100% okay. It's it's not for everyone, but he can understand. More to the point, not everyone can hunt. Here's the thing. There are 7 billion people on the planet. Like, if everyone hunts it, like, no. Like, we need farming. We need... Like, we need that. It's a balance, right? But sure. my issue is when people condemn those of us that do right. do it. So, do it right. We do it correct. That's right. Yes. That do it ethically. Yeah. So, and that's the thing is that I know you've described to us sort of like this process you go through it, when you do kill something, that there's a little process that you go through before you end up, you know, essentially taking it so that you can bring it home. Mm-hmm. Uh, trust me, guys, I've. I've seen the packets of meat. Like, I know that it's all there. Like, Adam, like, he very much takes as much that he possibly can to feed his family. Like, yeah, if, again, yes, I've definitely had the kind of burgers. <laughs> they were fucking delicious. The so. Pernos, uh, there's another name that I want to throw out. Um, <laughs> there's a guy by the name of Donnie Vincent. Um, who has a company called... Donnie who? I'm so sorry. Donnie Vincent. Vincent. It has a company called Sikmanta. It's S-I-C-M-A-N-T-A. Um, who makes this some of the most... This not paid for advertisement again. <laughs> no, but Donnie definitely hit me up. Like, <laughs> we live in the same state, dude. You're only four hours away. Like, we could work something uh, out. Let's do the shit. Yeah, yes, like, let's... if you're listening, you can call us. Yeah, Just you can. Saying. No, but, like, and he makes some of the most unbelievably incredible cinematography as far as his hunts like and it, like to, to watch I don't even care if you're into hunting or not his ability to capture the wilderness on film is nothing short of poetic it is absolutely like it's beyond inspiring I could just sit and watch his stuff and I have again and again and again and it just how anyone would watch something that he has made and not feel compelled to at least get out in the wild and just sit and watch is uh, is beyond me. And I've shared it with, with many, many people. So, uh, yeah. Hudson, Wisconsin. 
<laughs> well, I will say, I think we have a couple, like w- uh, one more question before we try and close out here. Yeah. But um, I think it's important. We've talked a little bit about, you know, the difference between hunting you as a hunter and the, and the people that trophy hunt and those types of things. But how do you think that this relates to sustainable practices? Because we talk a lot about sustainable practices. Yeah, we've with, had several with, episodes with, where we with, touch on that. With our wines and the Well, I think you guys were asking that. before also, like, how does this tie into wine? Yeah. Yes. Right? So because it's a wine podcast, and I think that there's a very... <laughs> no, I think it's a legitimate question. I think there's a very, very direct correlate. And it's actually one of the reasons why I got into wine. So it's a connection to the earth. And I think that that sort of goes back to the connection to nature. Wine, and the reason that I love or have begun to love wine, is that it's the same thing with farming, like actual, like legitimate farming, not not big ag, but actual, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, individual farming, is that it provides you as a human being with an intimate, the most intimate connection with the earth and with life. That's the thing, is we live in these this insulated pseudo-reality, which you're not necessarily intimately connected with life. And things like farming or wine, the growing of wine or hunting, it just wipes away all of the barriers between there and it allows you to sort of put your hand on the pulse of life. Yeah. You're going to take these vines and you're going to grow them and you're going to taste or like people talk about the terroir. They're going to talk about the terroir, right? And one of the great things about wine is when people talk about tasting the earth. You're going to taste the soil. You're going to taste the rock, right? One of my favorite documentaries, A Year in Burgundy, oh, when they're talking, about, right? they're talking about the soil, that the soil is life. And there's a difference. I can remember very distinctly my father taking me out to the garden one time and holding up a handful of dirt when I was a, when I was a young boy and saying, smell this. He goes, there's a difference between soil and dirt. Dirt is dead, but soil is alive. And he was right. Yeah. And with, with wine... You are you are taking something. You are taking the 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 essence of the earth, and you're putting it into a glass, and then you're experiencing that essence. Mm-hmm. And with farming, it's the same thing. For those of your audience who have never tasted like a tomato fresh off the vine, like you haven't lived. It's not the same thing as something in the store. It's it's not no. even close. Adam and Sarah's tomatoes are like to die for. <laughs> I'm gonna say that. I even went home and told my mom about Thank these you. tomatoes. I'm just gonna say it's not it's even mostly the same him thing. though. <laughs> um, say. But you know, so growing your own food, that intimate connection, and also like understanding that you were there and that you put the seed in the earth and that you tended it and that you, you know, and then you brought it in and then you made this into food for your friends, for your family. There's no meaning to it. There's, there's, it is, it goes, spiritual is a word I hate to use because I feel no, like it's just, but it is that. It's the only word to use for it. It is the only word to use for it. It's spiritual. It is. I get it. And it's, it is that connection with life, the earth, universe, whatever you want to say. But hunting is that magnified on a level 
that I cannot describe. When you are, especially when you are at close range with something with like more, with like, you know, there's gun hunting, there's bow hunting, there's traditional bow hunting. I mean, there's, there's a million different variations oh, of so it. Many facets, yeah. But when you are the one and when like you are in that moment, like with an animal and you are like, make the decision that like, you're going to take this animal's life to provide for yourself, for your loved ones. And then you do that ethically and you are successful after putting in countless hours of hard work, whether it be at the gym, keeping yourself in shape, in the library, researching, in nature, like learning the animals. Yeah, I mean, like, the, mm-hmm. and then and then it, it all comes together in that ten percent where you are successful. There's, there's nothing more life-affirming than that that I have ever known to experience. So I think that that is a great point because I think you're talking about, especially when we talk about sustainable practices with wine, uh, you're talking about sustainable practices with living and uh, Mm -hmm. how you kind of keep things local and keep things, you know, close close so that your family is getting the best meat possible that you can provide and and what is the most local and and, and the most organic Mm -hmm. and all of those things that we're kind of like trying to drive home as we talk about these topics that we were always talking about with less pesticides and and how do we you know like how do we how do we get the wine that's the most natural and all this stuff how do you get the meat that's the most natural well this is the way to do it so i think that's a great um point where we can kind of close off here yeah um i think that this has been quite the learning experience even for me who is with you uh, a good amount of time <laughs> i mean i would i but, would go because i'm not with you all the time but i would i mean i would go as far as saying you mentioned don vincent i remember that uh don vincent you described him as being very poetic. Donnie vincent if you guys if your don body vincent. wants to listen i would say Donnie Vincent for videos and Steve Ranella for podcasts and books. Like you guys will not go wrong. Both of those guys are are definitely uh, spokesmen for our time as far as this topic is concerned, and are, are far more eloquent than myself. Uh, check them both out. You heard it here in DBP. Whoa, whoa, whoa! But don't sell yourself short, Mister Adam. Because Mr. I Adam. think that oh, I can't. I'm not going to call my listening. I think that you are quite poetic in the way that you describe this, especially because this is something that was not like, like brought to you like early on in age, right? Mm -hmm. This is something that you sort of like taken upon yourself and internalized very, you know, very relatively early on from what you described and just sort of like carried this with you and just been cognizant of sort of what the world is becoming and trying to like take a step back into creating a more natural way of living. And I think that there's a lot, obviously, that goes into this. And it's not something that's like, hey, I'm just going to go, like, chug a few beers and, like, go fuck it, like, shoot some fucking deer or whatever. You know, I, it's And I that. think that's the, that's what the... That's the stigma. The stigma that we need, need to get to, away from. Exactly. Well, no. I or mean, at your least audience, that... Your audience needs to know that those people do exist, but your audience needs to know that people like myself... True. And those people that I would consider like my friends and other fellow hunters would shun those people. Yeah. 
No, seriously. There are very there are different buckets, just like in the world in general. Different buckets of people, but I'm really glad that we were able to get you on, especially with this wine. And it's it's really wonderful to have this particular topic because again, I've known you for a few years now. Just a few. It's just a few. It feels like it feels <laughs> like I've known you forever. Like I feel like I've known you both forever. But it's one of those things where I too I don't have hunting in my family's background necessarily, but I feel like I know, I know that there is more behind it. And it's not something that's just like I feel like I'm just, I feel like I just want to go shoot something. There is, there's such a deep meaning behind all of it. And I don't think that it is something that, that is something that many people can recognize. So I'm very glad that we were able to have you on the podcast to describe some of this for us, because it really, there is more meaning behind it. And there is a, there is a reason behind it. And it's something that I think provides good food, and a great spiritual, I'm, I'm going to say spiritual. I don't journey. Know, you don't like to say it, but a spiritual journey. A spiritual journey. It's very, you need to be in tune with the moment. And I think that we in society have lost that a lot. And I think that I'm happy, as Sarah described before, she's very happy that you found a passion. I'm very happy that this exists for people and that they can find that in nature. Oh. It was a pleasure. I appreciate you guys having me. That was so poetic, Jamie. You're not as poetic as your husband. <laughs> He's very poetic as well. There's so much poetic ism around. We're all poets. Surrounding me. Yes. Okay. Write us a limerick for DVP. Uh, thank you. Yes. And if you have any questions for Adam, please feel free to email us at dvpchews at gmail.com. We will pass oh, around the message. We do know him closely. And... Um, <laughs> That was amazing. <laughs> Jamie just had a soaring moment. It was awesome. Uh, and we will get back to you promptly. And also, if you'd like to review us, that would be great too. So please do on your your most lovable podcasting platform. Anyway, um, thank you, Adam, for joining us tonight. Yes, we really thank you appreciate so much. it. Thank we you for really, having me. We really enjoyed this and and the wine as well. So thanks yeah. our DVP listeners too. Cheers, Cheers. bitches. Cheers, bitches. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform to help spread the DBP word. Check out our website and blog at dbpcheers.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dbpcheers or on the Drunk Bitches Podcast Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you, so send your questions, comments, and fun wine or topic ideas to dbpcheers at gmail.com. Until next time. Cheers from the girls of DBP.